Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at SumatiSparks.com. And today I'm really excited to have Jill Nagel on our show. She's a counselor, a mediator, a multiply published author on sexuality, gender, and conscious relationship, and she's the founder of Wisdom of the Body Beyond Talk Therapy. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that a little bit later. But first, I just want to welcome you to the show, Jill. Thank you, Simity. I am delighted to be here and talking with you about such juicy stuff. Yes, it's great to have you here. Um, so, Jill, I wanted you to be on the show because uh, I kind of think of you as somebody who's in my larger polyamorous family of friends. Um, you know, one of your lovers' lover is one of my lovers' lovers. <laughs> so I don't think there's a word for that. <laughs> but I feel a connection with you, and I wanted to talk about open relationship with you. Do you consider yourself polyamorous, or do you have another label that you use? I think polyamorous is, uh, probably sums it up, even though um, there's a lot of different meanings of even that word. Um, one of the ways that I've described it is I don't consider, I know some people who consider themselves to be polyamorous, and by that they mean that at any given time they, they want to have multiple lovers. Myself, I get exhausted and overwhelmed <laughs> really easily, and I have so many things that I'm doing. So for me, it's more like, I mean, to be very kind of dry about it, if I meet somebody and like them, then sex is not automatically crossed off the list of things we might enjoy together. I mean, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay, thank you. And how long have you been practicing polyamory? Oh, my gosh. But... Uh, I've been doing I'm sorry, you cut out for a second. Sorry, you, you cut out just for a second. Can you say that again? Yeah, I've been doing polyamory for about 25 years. Somebody asked me that recently. Um, what I said was the first 10 years I did pretty badly. Got it. Yeah, don't don't we all? It, it takes a while to uh, to learn the nuances and that's why we're here to help people because we hopefully can help other people not make the same mistakes we made. <laughs> Amen. What are some of the important things you learned along the way? So um, back in the day, when I, when I first heard about polyamory, I thought it was quite amazing. I met this um, woman in college, and I was quite smitten with her, and she seemed to um, very easily consider the idea of polyamory, and I was with a man at the time, despite my, my best efforts to court women, it, that those didn't go over very well, so there I was yet again with a man, and I told him I wanted to explore this idea, and he he was not too keen on it, um, and I realized that even as I was exploring just feelings and attractions for other people, that I, I became overwhelmed, and I realized that I was wired, whether through culture or through something more innate to be monogamous. And so I consciously set about rewiring myself over the next several years because I wanted, because I wanted to live a life 
that was more in line with my ideals. Got it. So you tried to rewire yourself to be poly or to be monogamous? I got a little confused there. Amorous. Um, I, I realized that I wasn't able to explore polyamory when I first heard about it because I felt barriers within myself. And I wasn't sure if those barriers were because I had sort of swallowed the Kool-Aid of monogamous culture or if I was just, just really wired to be monogamous. But I wanted to experiment. I wanted to, I wanted to have a greater sense of choice for myself um, because I could see how I could see how people around me were living. I remember um, in 1990, I came out for the second international bisexual conference on bisexuality. It was here in San Francisco, and I was living in Philadelphia at the time. And I met a woman there and was just quite smitten with her. And um, she invited me away for a weekend with her housemates um, and this group of friends and lovers. And the whole thing was so relaxed and evolved and I was just blown away I'd never seen anything like this um, and I came away I coined a phrase biconomic which stood for um, bisexual clothing optional non-monogamous intellectually curious because that's what the whole weekend really was um, nobody was <laughs> tripping a lot of fluidity and how people related to one another and I, I guess what struck me the most is how organic it seemed to those folks. Um, so I, that really worked its way into my system as a model for um, a different way of relating. Of course, the polyamory that I was trying to do was much more fraught, had more drama. I, at the time, didn't really know what a boundary, what a personal boundary was, let alone that I could have one, let alone that mm-hmm. it was a really good idea to have them. And so I was with somebody who um, repeatedly broke commitments and, um, didn't tell me the truth and I allowed it to continue rather than going, huh, that doesn't really work for me. I'm going to stop this or at least say, look, this can't continue. So, so my early attempts, unfortunately were very painful for me because I kept wanting to put trust in my partner and kept getting the trust broken. And then I kept coming back for more. So if I had known then what it was like to be able to have a personal boundary of self care, what I will and will not um, tolerate in terms of those kinds of behaviors, I think it would have gone a lot better. Right. Thank you. And did you think that when you finally met somebody at the bisexuality conference who was a good role model to you around how open relationships can be drama-free, can be uh, have ease and flow, did that help you to have a sense of abundance? Because I think a lot of times we think, oh, there's nobody else like me and I don't have very many people to choose from, so I better settle. Um, so do you think that helped you open your mind that there was an abundance of different ways of relating out there? Absolutely. And um, I didn't know when I uh, became a bi activist that a lot of people in the bi activist community were also polyamorous. Um, so that was really interesting. And I, I learned, you know, I went to this, I was all in it for the social justice and I remember going to this conference in Boston and finding out that there was this whole other conference that was happening after hours and there were folks who were into BDSM. And I went, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Great. So for people, for people that are new to this, 
Can you talk a little bit more about boundaries and what you learned and um, maybe, maybe you teach that now? Um, just Some people might not understand if they're new to this, what that even means when you say boundaries. Yeah. So, um, wow, so there's a couple different ways to talk about this. Um, and one of them has to do with um, the personality patterns that we're running. That's something I use a lot in my my therapeutic work and my couples work um, and in my workshops, there are five personality patterns and all of us tend to be running one of them. Um, And the one that I tend to run is called oral or compensated oral. And that particular pattern tends to sort of ooze and, and have a difficult time knowing where they end and other people begin. Um, have you ever met somebody that just seemed very sort of clear and sharp and you realize you better not cross them and they were always say what they mean and mean what they say? And, well, I was more right. like more uh, connecting, more likely to let a conversation go on beyond the time I said I had to leave, you know, um, maybe ask a question that somebody else might find invasive or I'm not really having a sense, not really having a, a cut and dry sense of um, where one thing ends and another begins. So I I also didn't have a clear sense of myself. Um, and I remember reading Harriet Golder Lerner's book, uh, The Dance of Intimacy, and I was stunned to read that intimacy begins with having a strong I, meaning me, um, that if you don't know what your bottom line is, then you don't really have a strong I because anybody can run over you. This was complete and total news to me. Um, so I realized my bottom line was that it wasn't okay to lie to me and it wasn't okay to repeatedly break commitments. And once I realized that, I began to grow for the first time a real sense of self. I broke off the relationship with the person who was treating me the way that he was. I took a year and I basically didn't have sex with anyone. <laughs> it was a huge, huge um, turning point for me in terms of gathering a sense of self to bring to the world because hard to be in relationships if you don't know where you end and others begin. And even for somebody who does have good boundaries, which I did not, um, if you love somebody, it can also be difficult to um, care for oneself and also attend to the couple. And that that's, um, you know, of all the ways that relationship can be a spiritual path, I think polyamory is one of the um, one of the greatest teachers provided provided the pe- the, the couple is ready for it. They're not overloading, you know, overloading the system of one or the other of them. I mean, in the same way that being in a same sex couple stretches you, and makes you grow, because you're trying to find a way to be who you are as individuals and as a couple in a world that doesn't always accept you. So, um, the more mm-hmm. the more you're you're perceived race or ethnicity or your sexual orientation or your ways of loving are outside the box, um, the more work it's going to be to not only nurture your love, but also create the conditions that support that love. Very well said. Thank you. Um, I I just wanted to uh, reiterate that taking time alone is a great tool for people who tend to be more on the codependent side or people who Um, I used to be one of those people who had such severe abandonment issues that when I got into a relationship, I thought my job was just to be whoever they wanted me to be and say whatever they wanted me to say so they wouldn't leave me. And it took me 
taking that year of not being sexual with anyone and really doing my inner work to be able to be discerning in who I chose to be with. And it didn't make it go away. It's something I still continue to work with. But And I also took a lot of time alone two summers ago, um, some deep contemplative time to get really clear about how I want to show up in my current relationship. So I just want to remind everybody that I think that taking alone time away from your lovers, away from people, is a really important tool for learning what your boundaries are. Um, so, Jill, you talked about, you, you touched on um, polyamory as a spiritual path, um, but could you talk a little bit more about um, what that means? Sure. And, you know, not everybody identifies with the word um, spiritual. I'm thinking about my main partner in particular. Um, many people are interested in personal growth or in learning or um, in their own evolution, if you will. Um, so when you there's – a, there's a sort of script or template that um, – when people get into relationship, I think particularly in heterosexual relationships, um, it's sort of in the air, it's sort of in the culture, and people are expected to follow it. I was just looking at a um, a thread on Facebook about, you know, what if what if your partner wants to have lunch with someone of the opposite sex and share feelings with them? And some people said, no, deal breaker, no way. I'm thinking, so this is the received wisdom for most of American culture that if you're in a male-female relationship that you don't um, have intense social contact with um, anybody of the same sex as your spouse. And I remember um, Mm -hmm. when uh, when my son was about three years old and his dad and I would have these parties and we we invited other parents. And I realized that, that, that heterosexual culture contained all these rules that really confused me. But I was able to guess what they were. And one of the rules was I could call the female the male-female couple, but if I were to call the male, that would transgress some rule. And I wasn't supposed mm-hmm. to do that. And it's strange to me that it would be perceived as something threatening. I felt like I was a little bit like a fish out of water. Um, if you mm-hmm. decide to be polyamorous, you have to make, you get to, you get to make your own rules. And in so doing, you get to grapple with who you are, what's important to you, what's triggering, how you can ask for what you need without overwhelming your partner, how you can find a place where you both are in choice about how much you want to show up for each other. Um, So that all requires some pretty serious inner knowledge. Uh, I would say that for most people, polyamory is not for the faint of heart. I have seen people who who they're not so interested in personal growth. They just want to have a good time, and they happen to be wired the same way. And so their mutual assumptions and ways of being mesh really well. Awesome. For most people, I find that it's usually not 100% mutual. Usually one person wants to be a little bit more polyamorous or polyamorous in a different way. I remember in that first relationship I told you about, um, I was excited to make lots of connections, and my partner at the time said, oh, I was imagining that, you know, maybe like once or twice a year, one of us would get together with someone. I thought, oh, there's a set of Like one of the first things that people can do um, to get clear and to get to know themselves better is to say, what does this look like to you? What is your vision of what 
um, a polyamorous relationship would look like. And then another thing is to realize that when you're going into foreign territory like this, um, you might be very surprised. Some people think they have an idea in their mind this is going to be it's going to be such an awesome thing. I'm going to have all these lovers, yada, yada. And then, then their partner goes out with somebody and they freak out. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of feelings come up. So it can really be a proving ground to get to know yourself and see where your triggers are, what you need, how do you ask for what you need. Right. Thank you. And then, so I'm hearing, I'm hearing a lot of, I'm hearing a lot of things about communication um, so the naysayers around open relationship often say something like, well, there's just too much processing or um, you just have to process all the time. So what would you say to someone who might say that about open relationship? Um, a number of things. So some people really like processing and they're different kinds of processing. Um, for most people that I know who have been at this a really long time, um, the processing, like, like the beginning of a, any relationship, the beginning of a new phase of relationship can sometimes take extra processing. It's like the firepower to get the rocket off the ground. But then once it's in orbit, it's kind of effortless. I've seen that happen with a lot of people who really, really know each other themselves and each other. Um, and not to say that nothing ever happens, but I remember there was a time when I was with my son's dad and we were polyamorous where um, we had more arguments about the socks in the living room than we did about polyamory because we, <laughs> we have, you know, I knew what the rules were. So did he, and we followed them and it worked out really well. We wound up having um, a really beautiful extended family of friends and lovers. And would you say that the communication can actually increase the intimacy? Absolutely. You know, um, here's a funny phenomenon. Um, Nonviolent communication is also a big piece of what I use um, in my practice and not so much following a model that's taught, but more being able to get underneath the stories that we tell ourselves to the feelings and the needs underneath. That's mm-hmm. huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm even writing a book about it that goes beyond nonviolent communication about how we use forms of the verb to be, to stay outside of ourselves. So, I notice that when people start studying nonviolent communication and stripping away the stories they tell themselves and getting down to their feelings and needs, that that can sometimes spark an awareness that, oh, my gosh, I'm attracted to this person. I'm wanting autonomy and freedom. How does that land with you? Wow, I'm wanting security. Would you be willing to do this? Yes, I would be willing to do that. Or actually, how about if I do this? Okay, I can work with that. So in using in using a tool of nonviolent communication to get better acquainted with one's own feelings and needs and others and learning to make requests and learning to negotiate in ways that are really connected. Sometimes people wind up surfacing these desires and then they have these tools to negotiate this new territory. And on the other hand, Mm -hmm. the other side of the equation, I see people who do polyamory in a very high energy way, meaning they date a lot within the community. Maybe they, um, maybe feelings come up um, that people who are doing polyamory often gravitate towards nonviolent communication as a way to um, process and manage their feelings. And so, when I say some people like processing, um, I would say that 
to a certain extent. I am one of those people. I don't enjoy processing that comes from, I would say, irresponsible communication or non-mindful behavior. But when something comes up and it triggers vulnerable feelings for someone else, if the other partner can find a way to attend those feelings and really be there for their partner, chances are it's bringing up stuff that's not present time. It's bringing up stuff from childhood, from really vulnerable times. And if the person who's not triggered can manage to hold the space for their partner, they maybe can get to heal something that wouldn't have gotten healed otherwise. And if we step back, you know, 10,000 feet up and look look down, we are all in relationship. We are often seeking the very situation that's going to trigger the heck out of us just so that we can heal. If we're lucky, Mm -hmm. we have the wherewithal to ask for what we want and need. And if we're really, really lucky, our partner might be able to give it to us, and then we can begin to heal and move through some of the deeper wounds that fed those triggers in the first place. And then a relationship goes stronger, and we grow stronger as people. Wow. Well, you said a lot there, Jill, and I, I want to unpack a couple of things that you said. Um, first, when you talk about holding the space, it's a really important tool, and it's a challenge to not get triggered back if your partner's triggered to not also get triggered. Um, and then there's a fine line between holding the space and receiving abuse. So, um, you know, the person that's holding the space also has to have boundaries. So can you talk about that a little bit, about how, how to hold the space while also taking care of your boundaries and not getting triggered, kind of being in that sweet spot there? Yes. Yeah. So um, I'm a very big fan of mutually agreed upon timeouts. Um, and I also am a big fan of holding space by consent. Um, I will often say to someone, you know, if I just start going into something that I feel, I'll often say, are you up for this? Is this okay with you? Um, will you let me know if you start to get tired or break out, you know? Um, so holding space for it to work really well, um, I see a need for consent, as I mentioned, for entering into it when you feel really resourced. Um, also for having some ground rules that, that you establish when you're not triggered. Like, whoa, if I feel triggered, I'm going to do this. Or I want to be there for you. And it's like one of the things I've said um, many, many times to many people in many circumstances is I really want to be here for you. And it's hard for me if you're characterizing me, if it feels like you're coming at me, if you're saying, you know, you're doing this and you're doing this, I start to contract and I'm not able to be there for you as much. I'd really like to pay attention to you. Do you think you could talk to me in a way where you're owning your feelings, where you're telling me what it's really like for you, where you're being vulnerable? Because then I have so much more energy in it. So mm-hmm. there again is a chance to, you know, basically grow up, right? To learn how to take right. responsibility for your feelings as an adult and um, ask for help and be prepared to receive it. You know, no, I'm not up for that right now. Because, you know, our partners, um, our partners get to choose. Right. So my partner and I have an agreement that if he has a date with someone else and I get triggered around something, 
that he holds the space for me because he just got to have a date with someone else and vice versa. If I, if I have a date with someone else and we come back together and he needs to talk about something, then I hold the space for him because I just got to have a date with someone else. So we were both getting triggered at the same time. And when we made that agreement, it made a big difference. It's like, Oh yeah, I don't get to get triggered right now. I get to hold space. And then another time, if I want to bring this up, I can. So we, we had to definitely grow up around that and, and learn to give each other that gift of holding space. I love uh, that. Another I thing you it. said, yeah, sorry, sorry, go ahead, Jill. Well, I love that. I love the whole taking turns idea, Sumati, because, um, if we trust, if we trust that we will have our turn, sometimes we can um, gather up the resources inside of ourselves to be with the partner who needs it the most. I have said to, again, many people, many circumstances, many different times, I want you to be the bigger person here. You know, like if somebody, yes, yeah, so if somebody just had a date, if somebody, you know, um, if they're if they're in the more resourced, more privileged, more um, sort of padded situation, I want them to be the bigger person. I want them to recognize mm-hmm. that they're in a position of privilege with regard to the other one. I want that for right, myself. Right, thank you. Right, right, right. Um, and then you also mentioned you were talking about nonviolent communication, and you said something about the verb to be and how you uh, – can you just explain that a little bit more and give us an example of what you mean by that? Yes. So um, how many times do we hear someone say, and this is so messed up, um, I'm just, I just think this is a fiasco or, um, you're being an idiot. You're, you're being unfair. So all those sentences, um, are judgments and judgments usually use forms of the verb to be. That is endemic to the English language. Whenever we lang- whenever we describe reality, as being something that is this way. People are that way. We really ought to do this. Um, We're locating reality outside of ourselves, and we're making a statement that can be argued with. This is what arguments are. This is how words start, right? You're wrong. No, you're wrong. I'll show you how wrong you are, right? Um, If we instead speak from inside of ourselves, even I feel queasy. I'm scared. You can't argue with that. It's how someone feels. And if I share with you how I'm feeling, I give you the opportunity to to connect with my inner reality. Got it. Thank you so much for that explanation. That was wonderful. And if people want to know more about nonviolent communication, because it is a practice, and like you said, those, that way of speaking is endemic to our language, and which means that the, because it's our language, it's also how we think. So in order to change that, you have to practice thinking a different way and bringing the situation back inward to how am I feeling and what do I need, and it takes some practice. So maybe um, you can share with people how they can find out more about nonviolent communication. Sure. Well, actually, what I nonviolent communication is just a piece of what I do. Um, the overarching value of my wisdom of the body work is called um, being internally referenced. And by that, I mean mm. we look to our bodies and our feelings as the source of truth, and we go from there. That doesn't mean that we do everything that we feel, 
or that we think our inner realities are the only truth, but we start there. What am I feeling? What am I needing? NBC is a great tool, but NBC can be irritating too. People can sometimes use it in ways that are not very compassionate or that feel violent Mm -hmm. to the listener. That's one of the tools that I use. Another is knowing what your personality pattern um, because depending on whether our energy is going down into the ground or flying up out our head or oozing into somebody else, you know, or coming at them like a spear, um, that also takes us out of ourself, ourselves and out of our um, clearest sense of presence. So um, there's that, there's um, knowing how to get grounded and out of pattern and how to use, work with the language to inquire um, what are we feeling? What are we needing? And speak from a place of groundedness, awareness, rootedness to somebody else while having a sense of where we end and they begin. This is all part of um, being internally referenced. And these are great tools for polyamory. I have a, a day-long mm-hmm. workshop coming up called Fundamentals of Wisdom of the Body. And it's really all about everything we do in the nine-month immersion in a, an abbreviated form almost everything, um, it's all around becoming internally referenced so we can show up for ourselves. <coughs> Excuse me. We can show up fully for ourselves, and then we can bring our fully resourced selves to others, whether it's in an intimate relationship or a work situation or family. Um, we'll have those tools. Beautiful. I'm so glad you're offering it. That sounds very valuable. Um, if you're just joining us right now, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio with your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And we're speaking with Jill Nagel, author, counselor, mediator, and creator of Wisdom of the Body, Beyond Talk Therapy. So, Jill, um, I've seen some of your writings on social media about white privilege. And can you talk a little bit about um, what polyamory has to do with that? Sure. Um so this is something I have the privilege of not thinking about because I'm white. Uh, but I've been very interested in anti-racist activism for a long time. Uh, <laughs> uh, a lineage of my Aunt Phyllis in 1946, at the age of 19, integrated a segregated bus in South Florida. Wow. Mayhem and love. I'm working on a film about that. She actually went on to found and teach a black studies course and founded a whole department um, in North Miami. She did that for 25 years. She's a white Jewish woman. Yeah, there's a lot of stories around that, too. She got challenged by a young black man. Uh, She didn't really know what it was like to be black. So she said, you know, you're right. And she invited him to team teach. So there's an example of um, stretching white privilege a bit. Um, so as as a white person, I, ha- I have a lot more leeway to choose and um, do what I want because I'm not going to be vilified to the same degree. Um, and so when I think about polyamory and all that that entails and, you know, the risks of being out, um, I want to keep in mind that a lot of these choices that I make, I don't know that I would make as easily if I weren't white Um, or that everything that I say necessarily applies to someone in a different life circumstance. 
Got it. Thank you. So it's really good to presence that issue and, and be conscious of it. Thank you for including that. Um, so let me move on to talking a little bit about your work. Um, you do counseling and mediation. You work with couples. Maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit more about the difference between couples counseling and mediation. Sure. Um, mediation usually happens when um, two people have a specific problem or conundrum um, and they want to get through it and it, it's sort of a like a, a one-off. Um, they may be co-workers, they may never see each other again, you know, um, so it's, yeah, it's basically to get through a, a particular issue. Um, and I use a different skill set for that, although there is some overlap with, definitely with the mediation of couples. Counseling. Couples, um, I really love working with with couples who are committed, who um, who see relationships as a path to personal growth, um, because if they're in it for the long haul, I can. Well, I mean that's. I don't want to. I don't want to exclude people who are exploring whether or not they want to be together because that's so important too. Um, but when people are already in relationship and want to remain in relationship in whatever form. Um, I can I become energized by that investment by that desire to um, to nurture the relationship and then I get to show up and, and help to nurture that relationship too and help them to deepen and become better allies for themselves and each other and that involves a wider a wider range of my skills um, sometimes I use the energy med- same energy meditations that I teach my students to help help clients feel more in themselves because again you know going back to that book i read now 25 years ago intimacy starts with a strong eye a strong sense of self Um, and when we are overly identified um, with what the other person is doing for example if a member of the couple if i say how you're how are you doing and they look at their partner and they start talking about their partner that tells me they may not even have a sense of themselves or it may be very hard for them to actually um, tune into what's going on for them. So some of my work sometimes involves um, working to get each person to feel into what it's like to be separate. And then, um, of course, if, if people are or people are estranged from each other and trying to come together, then um, we work on building So it doesn't always go one way or the other. I'm sorry, you cut out. You said you work on building what? If people are feeling estranged and there's a lot of mistrust, we, we um, work on finding finding the areas that are working and building on those strengths. Because when a couple is having a hard time, there's usually a lot of anxiety around that. And they can forget all the things that they love and enjoy about each other. And sometimes, and this, there's a fine line here because it's not about denial, but sometimes... Um, simply shifting focus of attention. Um, if you're spending like 60% of your time focusing on what isn't working and only 40 focusing on what is, if you, can, if you shift that just a little bit, then both people can feel much better and be more resourced to, um, to look at the parts that aren't working. So I sometimes right. try to help cultivate a habit of attention 
to choose to step into the joy, choose to step into the love, choose to step into the really fun things that they have in common that they used to do together. Beautiful. Thank you. And what would you say to couples wanting to open their relationship? Slow down. (laughs) Yeah, usually. I would say usually. Um, Think about where you want to be on the polyamory spectrum. Um, Franklin Vo has a map. Actually, I just sent it to someone of all the different ways or many, many, many of the different ways that people could choose to be polyamorous. What's your map? How does it compare to your partners? Um, what are the ground rules? Is that rules? the the, off, the more than more than two author you're referring to? Yeah. So um, he, I think he has a very uh, website with a lot of great information for free on it. More than two dot com. Is that correct? I believe so. Yeah. 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 Okay. Go ahead. Um. Yeah. Talk about what it would be like. When I first, um, when I was with my son's dad, um, I realized that my desire to be with women was starting to feel more like a need. And we talked about that for months. And then we decided on a plan. The plan didn't work. I wanted another plan. I wanted to have a girlfriend. At first he said, whoa. You know, we talked about that for months. Um, and every step was, was done pretty slowly. Because it's like, you know, your relationship is like an organism. Um, and if you decide you want to do something to your organism, like build muscle or teach it a new habit or a new way of moving, um, be gentle with that organism. See what that organism can take, what can, can tolerate. How does that organism need to be nurtured through the process of learning this brand new way of being? Mm-hmm. Right, and keep checking back in with each other to see how it went and honing your communication skills as you go. Yeah. A lot of, uh, I've found that a lot of monogamous couples that have been in a long-term relationship have swept years or maybe even decades of material under the rug. And so it can take a while to unravel all that stuff and start speaking the truth to one another again. Yeah. Yeah. And And it can be scary, but it's also necessary if we want to be seen and have true intimacy. Um, if we don't, you know, that they say intimacy is into me, you see. So if you're not revealing who you really are by sh- expressing what your wants and needs are, the other person is never really going to see you. And it's not, in my opinion, it's not a real relationship. It's not real love if you're hiding who you are. Exactly. And, if you know, if you look at sitcoms and, you know, what's available to us in the media, you might get the idea that relationships are about looking shiny and happy all the time. Um, and if you start to deal with stuff that is more real, feelings can come up. And so I, I think a, a great approach or um, attitude to take um, is to watch the judgments about the feelings. Watch the meta feelings. In other words, um, like the other night I was with my partner and um, we have different approaches. He's, he's working with um, a scientific approach to energy and I'm, I'm working with <laughs> different forms of energy and what we do in wisdom of the body, like creating a field of love and spaciousness for the wisdom of the client's own body comes forth. And I was trying to share something with him 
about what I was doing, and I wanted him to to sort of work with me and play with me. I remember I don't remember what he said, but he frowned, and I just burst into tears and I said, "I want you to come play in my sandbox." And thinking about it now, I did kind of feel like a four-year-old, like. I've been studying and learning about what he's doing, and I wanted him to be excited about what I was doing. Um, mm-hmm. And I found out later that I, I, I sort of misunderstood what I thought, you know, was going on. But what I didn't have was a judgment that what happened was bad, right? I could have gotten really ashamed. I'm so sorry. I acted that way. I acted like a child. Well, yeah. Well, the reason that I was acting like a child is because I felt like a child, and that's okay. That happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really sweet. You know? He could have said, oh, you know, come back and talk to me when you can calm down. Right? And so that is what I call, I'm just coining the sense. So that's sort of like the sitcom, right, version of relationship. Mm-hmm. If we think that relationship is all about um, bright and shiny and happy all the time, yeah, we're going to sweep stuff under the rug. But if we start looking at, the, like the gritty, uneven, and um, jagged truth of being a human being that, you know, is still figuring out how to be on the planet and how to be with other people, which, frankly, I think we all are, then it becomes okay. Like Marshall Rosenberg, the founder of Nonviolent Communication, talks about being able to enjoy someone else's pain. Yes, I was crying. Yes, my feelings were hurt. And that's not bad. It just was. Mhm. Yeah, and I appreciate you sharing that vulnerable story from your life. Um, and it reminded me of what you were talking about earlier um, regarding uh, we go into relationships and parts of us that need to be healed come up. So it sounds like yeah. that four-year-old child in the sandbox kind of popped up and if your partner can hold the space for that, then that gives you a chance to heal that piece of yourself. Yeah, and I was just wailing, I want you to come play in my sandbox too. (laughs) (laughs) And I I actually, I kind of enjoyed that I got to fully express that, you know, and he was so skilled. And and then he says later, you know, I feel sad that, that that's how that, you know, that you think I don't want to play in your sandbox. I do. Then he pointed out later, mm-hmm. look, this is me playing sandbox, and he went into this this uh, this exercise together. Um, so it was, a, it was a very sweet, you know, resolution to that. That's awesome. I'm so glad. Um, so, Jill, uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your work, Wisdom of the Body Beyond Talk Therapy. Sure. What is well, what what lies beyond talk therapy? <laughs> well, so listen of the body started with a question, and I'll tell you what that is in a moment. Um, and in 2013, I had a partner who was a survivor of severe trauma, um, and she would manifest this by um, feeling pain in a certain part of her body, and it was often different, like her rib cage or her shoulder or her thigh, and. I would hold her and touch into those areas where she was hurting and then she would release all of these feelings and then the pain would go away. And so the question that I mentioned a moment ago was, where can an adult go to get sustained, aware, non-sexual physical contact from someone who also has the capacity to work with their feelings and thoughts? I thought, I want that kind of work. 
I'd like to offer that kind of work. I don't know where one could go to get it. So I took all of my vacation time from my Silicon Valley Fortune 500 six-figure high-tech job and invited all of the, the healers that I knew to come and get sessions with me in exchange for feedback. Well, I thought all the sessions were going to be like they were with my partner, but I was in for a surprise. First off, not everyone won physical contact. They were like, wait, we don't know each other. This is weird. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that I had ancestors in the room from the very first session. I was not prepared for that. I felt mm-hmm. very comfortable with the physical contact piece. I felt comfortable working with the cognition piece and very comfortable holding space for big feelings. Um, but I wasn't prepared for metaphysical piece. And so I'm now um, in uh, halfway through my third year of energy class, um, working with Norma Ramos Ott, who is Linda Cesera's student and also in her own right. Um, and I've taken some family constellation training and I've gotten more of a facility, although I'd say I'm still, <laughs> I'm nowhere near an expert gotten more facility to handle um, when when people come in with wounds that are clearly beyond the here and now. That's been very interesting. I thought mm-hmm. the wisdom of was going to wind up being a collection of modalities. I had a few people come forward. Oh, so then I should go back to the story and say, um, while I was figuring out how I could go part-time in my job to further explore this modality, um, I got laid off. And so one thing led to another, and I wound up with a year to explore and develop this modality. A couple of people came forward who were interested in the work, and we formed a little dojo where we would practice and learn with each other. And so I actually got to receive the work, which was really nice. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought that the body was going to be a collection of modalities, like we're going to take NBC and reevaluation counseling, which is based on the cathartic model, and we're going to throw in some family constellation and some energy work, and then that's going to be wisdom of the body. That's how we're going to learn. That's how we're going to teach it. Um, but what I found was that it was really about creating a field of love and spaciousness where the wisdom of the client's own body comes forward and gives us clues to what they need. And that's kind of exactly like the ideal parent would provide. Like if a child is hurt, and they sense that there's enough of a field of love and spaciousness, they will hurl themselves into the parents' arms, and they will shake and cry and thrash or whatever they need to do until they are fully done. And then they'll run off and play as if it never happened. Peter Levine has found that animals do a similar thing in the wild. He wondered, well, how is it that a prey animal walks around and has to deal with shaking off the trauma of um, another animal attempting to eat them on a regular basis? How do they walk around and, and, and be relaxed after that? Well, he found that they do things similar to what humans do when they have the spaciousness, which is they, they shake. They shake their bodies. They, they shake the trauma out of their systems. And we also have that capacity, except that our capacity as children is usually interfered with by well-meaning but misguided adults who who think that our healing attempts are actually expressions of hurt, so they try to stop it. So a lot of what we do in Wisdom of the Body is about tapping back into that innate capacity to heal, which we all have. Beautiful. Well, I can see how this would be really useful to people who are going through um, healing crises and different things that open relationship can trigger. 
So, um, for example, if somebody is new to it and their partner, like you said, you know, they think they're just fine until their partner starts to date somebody else. So sometimes when, when their partner starts to date somebody else, they get triggered in their abandonment issues, their core wounds, maybe even uh, past life stuff around not being wanted, not being enough, not feeling loved. Those really, really deep core wounds. Um, how would your work um, apply to, to that situation? Well, sometimes I do work with people um, individually to help them get more resourced during the process of opening their relationship. That, that helps a lot because most people don't know how to gather their resources. Um, ultimately, one of the things I do with, with couples opening up is, is um, create a, a, a trigger scale like to be able to say, and I've done this with partners myself, you have a partner say, oh, is that triggering for you that I want to date this person? Well, no, it's only like a one or a two. I can handle that. But um, if something is really through the roof, um, in the organism of the couple, you know, if a limb is on fire, you want to stop and put it out, obviously. Um, so I am an advocate for when, when, you know, somebody is triggered at an emergency level to help them get regulated help them get stable again um, so that the organism of the relationship can continue to function. And then ultimately, and then eventually um, both people can get tools to manage when they have smaller triggers. You know, and sometimes mm-hmm. something that used to be a larger trigger becomes a smaller trigger because they've done some work around it, because they have a better understanding, they just are used to it. You know, sometimes newness can can fuel triggers because not only is this thing happening, but we haven't been through it before and so we don't know what's happening. If it's if you're three years into a polyamorous relationship and your partner says, oh, I just met someone I want to go on a date. How do you feel about that? And you've been through this before and you've built the trust that comes from seeing your partner go out on a date, come back when they said they would, climb into bed with you, snuggle you, and like you have whatever it is your agreement is, you have had that experience built up the trust it's going to be a wholly different experience because you now have expectations and the confidence that they'll be met. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me a little bit more about what it looks like when there's a couple um, coming to you for counseling and, you know, what do you do with the couples when they're in front of you? <laughs> you know, it's, it varies so much. Um, Sometimes it, it's often that, 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 quote-unquote real issues um, don't come out until a few sessions in. There's the, and it's, same, you know, it's the same with, with regular therapy. With, you know, we're all, because we're now all developing a new relationship, me and the couples, and, you know, humans are slow to trust, and we should be. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so one of the things I look for is um, where is the power who feels empowered to speak? Um, who's holding back? What's going on? How can I um, help the person who has less of a voice to come forward? Um, another thing I really look at, and this has been so profound, so profound in my couple's work, is um, who's running what personality pattern? Um, there was a moment a while back um, with a couple who gave me permission to speak about this where uh, – how do I put this? So one would exit 
and then the other one would feel abandoned. And, you know, um, a more traditional therapeutic approach might be, well, let's look at the abandonment issues, what are the triggers, how can you exit, what else can you do? And we did do a lot of that. But what I realized that in that moment, um, one partner was going into what I would call a psychopathic pattern. She was sort of, her energy was sort of coming up and out. And the other partner, um, that triggered her to go into a schizoid pattern, which is basically fragmenting and leaving. And so when we noticed that that was happening, we could say, wait, freeze frame. Can you come down out of that? Can you come down out of that pattern? And, and then the other partner, she just relaxed. And so that feels so much better to me. I can, you know, and then we also, you know, created a routine for if she does have to leave, she's going to write her partner a note with a heart and I'm going to be back in 10 minutes or 20 minutes and, and then stick to it. But to be able to sort of slow down the, the frame and say, well, right there, right there is where this, this disconnect is about to happen. Let's nip it in the butt and give them a choice. Do something else. So profound. And this isn't something mm-hmm. I've you want to jump in? Sorry, go ahead. Well, what's so exciting to me is I have not seen the work of the personality patterns applied like this to uh, circumventing a rupture. Um, I learned a lot about ruptures when I was in couples counseling um, with a therapist who was doing emotional, not emotional freedom technique, emotionally focused therapy. And we talked a lot about, you know, what happens when there's a rupture, but we didn't talk about like what happens right before there's a rupture and how can we prevent it? So that is super, super exciting to me. And I'm eager to do this with as many couples as I can. Nice. Um, And it also sounds like you're bringing some of your energy training into it when you talked about going up and out and asking the person to come back down. Are you speaking of energy? Well, that, that's the primary metaphor that we've been using to talk about um, to talk about the personality patterns. You don't even have to call it energy. Um, you could talk you could talk about it strictly behaviorally. You could say, you know, when that person leans toward the other person and opens their eyes really wide and raises their voice and comes mm. near them, right? That'll cover mm. it because mm-hmm. most people before. Right. I see that. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jill, it's been wonderful speaking with you. Um, I wish that we had more time. I think we could go really deep into some of these topics, but this was a really great overview of you and your work, and I'm really proud of what you've created and that you've been a success story leaving Silicon Valley. (laughs) Thank you, Sumati. So before we run out of time, um, I'd like to give you a few minutes to tell people how they can reach you if they'd like to work with you. And I think you also have a, a gift for our listeners. Yes. Um, so I have a couple of things coming up um, this month. One of them is an introductory play shop. It's called Feel More, Suffer Less. Um, and you heard me talk earlier about um, being with the feelings and actually enjoying them. Yes, I was acting like a child because I was feeling like a child, and that's great. <laughs> so um, we're going to get to play in that field, and I'm also going to demonstrate some of the wisdom of the body work. Um, and that's happening um, 
Thursday, May 11th, 7 o'clock at Rudra Mandir. And all this is um, on my website, which I'll tell you in a moment. And then um, on Sunday, May 21st, we're having a day-long workshop called Fundamentals of Wisdom of the Body, which is also a sampler of the 2017-28 immersion. We are in the final throes of the 2016-2017 immersion right now. It's nine months of all this getting fully resourced, working with the energy patterns, um, leading up to being able to use physical contact with each other in a healing way. Why don't we just jump into that? Well, because if we don't know when we're in pattern, we can wind up um, oozing into other people, pulling on them, exiting or all kinds of things. So we spend a lot of time learning how to become fully resourced in our bodies. Um, so we're going to go into that plus the language factor that I talked about. It's basically, the day long is basically all about how to become internally referenced mentally, physically, energetically, emotionally. Um, so you're going to come away with a huge complement of resources including what personality pattern you're doing and how to get out of it. And I'm also going to give you um, a list of how to follow up, what books to read, um, if you want to pursue this on your own. Um, for couples, I have an offer for um, just for the next, what, 48 hours? Yeah, no, it's good through midnight, Thursday, May 11th. Um, just, and you're going to see for... Um, for Sumati's radio guests. <laughs> and it's wisdomofthebody.com slash couples. That's www.wisdomofthebody.com slash couples. And this that URL is not available um, anywhere else right now. can't get to it from the front of my website. But I do have space for a couple more couples in my practice. So Great. I hope... And, pe- and people can contact you for questions at uh, wisdomofthebody.com. On, you have a contact page on, on your website? Yeah, you can contact me through there, and you can also just write jill at wisdomofthebody.com. And if you find me on Facebook and friend me on Jill Nagel and like Nancy, A-G-L-E, I can add you to the Wisdom of the Body events page, and you'll always know what's going on. Fabulous. Okay, well, we're out of time, Jill. Thank you again so much for being my guest, and I will see you on the campus. (laughs) Bye. Bye, Sumati. Okay, bye.